Welcome to the Recovery Stories Podcast, bringing you stories of hope, healing, and triumph over the bondage of addictions, mental health struggles, trauma, and dysfunctional family systems. Our courageous storytellers have chosen to live their journey out loud in order to show others that they don't have to suffer in silence. The stories you will hear are raw, real, and may involve graphic and triggering content. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098. Or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Hello and welcome to this episode of Rooted Recovery Stories. Um, I am so, so extra excited to introduce our guest, but also be spotlighting her for National Recovery Month. It is September and uh, we're celebrating because we are worth celebrating and so is recovery. So today I've got uh, Golden Globe and SAG, GLAAD and Emmy nominated and winning 30 plus times actress Dee Dee Pfeiffer. Welcome to the Hi. show. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, it is so, so amazing. Such an honor to have you with us. I'm glad we were uh, finally able to make this happen. And I cannot wait to hear uh, your story. You know, you've been on so many things in TV and played. Uh, so many other people's stories from Ellen, Seinfeld, CSI, Friends, Supernatural, ER, Wanted, and currently on Big Sky, one of uh, my favorite TV shows, uh, drama on ABC. And, um, you know, it's uh, this is this is our chance to talk about the drama of D.D. Pfeiffer's life yeah. and behind the scenes. Um, I love, I will say, I love following you on social media because you are such a transparent person. Your DD thought of the day, um, you, you know, you open up people, uh, to people about just what's happening in your, the realness of your recovery journey as it, as it goes on. And so, um, we're, we're going to have all the ways that everybody can connect with Didi uh, in the show notes. So I would suggest that you do that. But with, following my crazy Didi random thoughts. <laughs> and they're I love really it. random, aren't they? Yeah. But isn't that, I mean, that's like where that's kind of life, the life of a recovering person, you know? God, it's so true, man, right? Oh. Yes. But when those, I call them the, the, like the truth nuggets, either somebody else says it or it hits you, either it's from God, your higher power, or just the stars aligning correctly, you get it. And you, first of all, don't want to forget it, but you also want to share it because yes. they're so good. I call them zingers. 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 Nice. It's when you're like, doo, 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 doo. If someone says something or you read something, you go, whoa, and it goes like right in. And you go, okay, mm -hmm. that needs to be repeated. Some other people need to hear that and hopefully hear yeah. what I did or maybe it hopefully it goes into this little thing called our hearts. Because like um, when you mentioned something earlier about this amazing month, one thing about people in recovery that seems that we often forget is Let's just call it what it is. It's really hard to stay yeah. sober every day or not use your DOC, your drug of choice, gambling, sex, meth, alcohol, whatever. To do yeah. that every day, it doesn't. Sobriety or recovery is not for pussies, not for wimps. It's tough. You're tough. I'm tough. We're all tough for doing it. You know? That's right. 
It's like That's right. the reason some people think it's, oh, they're not using it, so it's not easy for them. No, it's like, it's like you've got to be kind of tough. you got to take the knocks and get through those tough days to get to those beautiful light days, you know, mm-hmm. and go from mm-hmm. the identified problem to the identified possibility. And I love saying that. Kath- Kathleen Murphy, she taught me that. Because mm-hmm. in your disease, you're the identified problem. But you have, the beauty of it is the minute you decide, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I need help. Ask for help. You immediately go to becoming the identified possibility. Showing others what it looks like, man. It's a hard journey, but it's a, a, the most important journey that you'll ever take. Because, that is a zinger that I'm going to take with me for right? sure. That's yeah. so good. Every time I'm, every day I do it, get through the tough bumps, whatever, and, and appreciate the good times is another day I show my boys and other people what it looks like. And it's mm. beautiful. To, to, well, to, and yeah. you couldn't have put it better that, you know, um, one of the goals of, of uh, I think, what you do with your openness, what we do on this show is the importance of showing like it's, you know, getting sober. Nobody promises you it's going to be a bed of roses and it's going to be perfect. It's going to be real life reality. It's going to be, you know, tough, like you said, yeah. but we have the gift of solution. It's possible to find joy. And that's where I think it's so, so important to match telling the story of how bad it was with then following into the, of course, the solution, why we're so excited to be here and talk to each other today about about your story. So people say, well, it's so hard to stay sober. I said, was it easy staying in your disease? Were mm. you really reaping all the benefits of the goodness of life by turning turning people off. Uh, I mean, look at all the messy messiness happens when you're in your disease. It's pretty miserable. You're pretty sad. You're running from a lot of pain and trauma and all sorts of stuff. Right. So That's right. Ask if life for normies is hard. So why mm-hmm. would recovery be any different? So that's what I'm saying. What we do is really amazing. And we mm-hmm. are like am- amazing people for even trying to stay sober. Right. It's kind of that's cool. absolutely the truth. I love being absolutely the truth. man. We're, we're really special people. Fist bump. <laughs> Amen. Fist bump. Yeah. Um, so let's let's hit the rewind and go back. I, I love to kind of take a go back and uh, paint a snapshot of um, where where you're from, family life. What did that look like? Family history. Where'd you grow up? If you could share some of that. Um, to set the stage, I would love it. Absolutely. Well, um, for the most part, back. Well, okay. Let's let's do a little math. I was born in '64. I know a lot of your listeners are like, huh? What? What? Yeah, a long time ago. I'm 58. So if you go way back in time, this is before electronics, before phones, before any of that. We actually would have to go on the phone and dial rotary, and you have to remember someone's number. You need to dime at a phone book. So it, it's a, it was a long time ago, and I was very much raised with an old way of thinking, for sure. You know, my parents were from North Dakota, farm farmers, you know, small town, father, alcoholic, that's just the way it was. It was, of course, I drank, I'm married to your mom, kind of excuse. Mom had mental health issues. She had shock treatments in the 50s. Wow. So, yeah, so we had, a, we had it all. And yet, looking back, I don't know, we were much different than everybody else. You know, getting smacked mm. in the grocery store was part of like, just to keep your child in order, right? Right. Right. And you know what was resilience and tough and rewarded when you hurt something happened to you, but you got back up, you brushed it off, and you kept going. Didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. Didn't hurt. Right. And alcoholism was never talked about 
ever because it was just kind of part of the fabric of that generation, right? Yeah. So that's where I was I'm sitting on my dad's lap, drinking, sipping his Coors was love, man. That was love. He acknowledged me. And I would drink that sour beer all day long if it meant my dad would give me any attention, right? Mm. Um, so that's kind of classic generational way of growing up. Um, I'm a single mom, two boys. So, of course, I wanted to shift that around. Um, so Orange County, not not the Orange County that's really rich. Like Beverly Hills threw up all over Orange County. That's unrecognizable to me, dude. I don't even recognize Orange County. I was pretty much raised like under the freeway near Garbage Grove, Santa Ana area. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You could- that, that, that was like your young childhood in Orange County? Yeah, and then I moved up here to 18. So if you think about it, I'm 58, 18. So basically, I've lived up here more than down there, for sure. Um, okay. But our family is, you know, there's Rick, Michelle, me, and Lori. And I would say we're a pretty average family when it comes to just, you know, the same stuff, you know, getting in trouble, <laughs> getting into your sister's makeup and getting in and get ripped by your dad because, you know, it's just, just kids, stupid stuff. But yeah. But I think that what happens is with that generation is that we were, like I said, we were taught that don't feel. If you felt you were weak, if you cried, yep. you were weak, right? So there's that that mentality I grew up with. And I certainly inherited my father's alcoholism. Um, high mm. functioning. I say high functioning in the sense that we had food and we had clothes, but he certainly never excelled past that. My father, I to this day feel that he could have been so much bigger and more had he mm. ever had access and was willing to the kind of treatment that I had. I went to intensive inpatient, you know, for a month, left everybody I knew for a month and my children, and my animals, which was very scary in my fifties, in the middle of my master's wow. program at UCLA. But yeah, well, wow. like, yeah, like a lot happened. It was like my Did body, your, yeah. Sorry, quick question. So yeah. your father died before he, he never found recovery and sobriety. Oh, yeah, no. He he died of cancer, took his, um, his addiction with him, his disease with him. Mm. And I also just love to say this. People forget that addiction is not a choice. That's right. It's not. It's a disease. It's something that I'm a huge advocate for. That's why I'm a huge advocate for having a conversation. Hi, yep. I'm a single mom. I'm in recovery from alcoholism. I'm an actor. I'm a social worker. Just throw that in there. Just yep. throw it in there. It doesn't have to be like, oh, did she just say that? Yeah, I did. It's okay. Yep. You have to take the sting out. It's okay. You're not. You have to take a big breath. I just said it out loud. I'm a fifer, you know, and guess what? We're, you know, I'm like a lot of people out there in the world. Um, so, you know, my journey was uh, kind of just a lot of that, wanting to be loved, looking in the wrong places, um, mm. food addiction right away, love addiction right away, certainly whack-a-mole, my Lord, as I drink a lot of coffee. Um, and <laughs> right there, look, <laughs> put it look. in the IV. Have you seen a cup this big before? <laughs> Here, hold on. Yeah, uh huh. Good morning, gorgeous. Right now, I love it. Spice in it, but yeah, uh huh. I love it. Right. So yeah, on the big sky, I'm like the crazy girl in recovery. So basically, you know, it was kind of a normal childhood for the most part, but one would say dysfunctional. Sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that's all we knew back then. It's not like there were choices. My parents didn't know any different. I do believe right now my father is around me, helping mm. me what he couldn't do. I know my mom is a huge supporter also around me, saying Dieter do be an advocate for people with you know mental health issues. She got yeah. choked, you know, with a thousand volts of electricity. Yeah, because you know. Um, so I. A lot of people don't know if you could just share a little bit about that 
that piece because we have they have electroshock therapy today which is nothing like what happened back in the day so if are you able to describe for anybody who doesn't know you know like what how what the difference is you know and Um, how how far we've come with that i think that we forget that it wasn't that long ago that we have lobotomies which is the the stick in the eye and they they plug it in and francis farmer and it touches a part of the brain to numb it we went from that, we went further high up in medicine and two shock treatments, which I guess was more humane. And basically, my mom said they shocked her until she didn't feel anymore. And mm. what she had was postpartum. But they didn't know what that was back then. She said, wow. I couldn't stop crying. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's one-on-one diagnosed postpartum. But they didn't know. They just knew that mm-hmm. she's not acting right. She's acting right. Weird. She should, she's had some babies. She should be fine, right? Right, so, right. Um, and also, at that time, they would consider anybody with a nervous breakdown or anything like that a leper. My mom was you know, shunned by a lot of the people. And when I heard those stories when I was older, that made me angry. That pissed mm. me off. Um, thank God I was born in this generation because I probably would have been hung back then for being really right. loud and like, uh-uh, you know, um, but if well, you- especially especially women, uh, back, like you said, I, it, it, people in general, but especially women during that period of time, just it, it was unequivocal. Yeah, um, there's a there's a so social norms in every society that one must fit in. Mm-hmm. And men drank all the time and hit their women all the time, and they're like, "Oh, we had a hard day." Now we're like, "You hit me, man. Uh, uh-uh, I'm out." Right? I would hope. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So times have truly changed. So this was what they did back then yeah. to, to solve my mom's problem of crying. Ten minutes a week of therapy to see how the shock treatments were going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and it was, I mean, and it was like full on. Well, like what you have on your head, but in the temples, they put a bar in your mouth or a piece of stick or something because you convulse and they just shock you so you don't brush mm-hmm. your teeth. And um I did, a, I did my very first um, college paper. I went to college. I didn't know how to write. I didn't know anything. They said, write about something you care about. So kids in the college class were, I was in my 40s, right, when I went to college. And they were like, um, they were writing about my first trip to Disneyland or first trip to the dentist. And I wrote, my, my mom, pre, during, and post shock treatments. Because <laughs> I want to do research on I want to write a paper. And, yeah. and boy, did I. Boy, did I. Um, they asked me to, to get it published because they loved it. They thought it was such a passionate paper. I keep forgetting to do this. 13 years later, I get me to do that. But um, what I discovered was in her mind, she said it was the best thing that ever happened to her. Sadly enough, at that time, huh. she said to me, deed or do is the best thing that happened to me. And I'm looking at her like, oh, my God. Because I, I never knew what she was like before that. But I saw pictures. Because mm. then she after that, then it was, she had me and my other sister, Lori. Wow. Um, such a generational thing. So now the shock treatments are only used as a very, very last resort and they're completely mm-hmm. different. But I um, did, like they're I said, much more mild. Yeah. 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 It's a whole different thing now. I'm a, I can't sit there and tell you I'm a fan of that treatment. Right. But then right. again, I'm not in the bones of somebody so terribly depressed. They have tried every single thing and they're not able to get past that. You, you know what I mean? Yep. So I'm not going to judge yep. anybody for seeking any kind of help. Oh, hell no. No, 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 I would never do that, you know? And if you sit there and tell me it made a difference, then I say, awesome. All I want yeah. is people to be healthy and happy, you know, whatever that looks like for them. 
Absolutely. So you talked about being high functioning. What, um, what did life, uh, you know, so, so your mom, uh, you know, what, what, what was the, what were those middle years like, um, you know, finding, uh, you know, your kid's father, um, was there mild addiction going on at the time? What, what kind of transpired, you know, through your twenties and thirties? Well, I think this is what's so interesting about addiction and very misunderstood, you know, that people think just because I could go nine months twice for my children and not drink, then, oh, she's not an alcoholic, right? It, there's mm -hmm. that, there's such a misunderstanding. And mm -hmm. I also didn't drink ever during work. I never drank during school when I went to college. You know, that I could behave and act like a normie, but trust me, my brain was always thinking about it. You left a glass of wine half full at the table. I didn't oh, yeah. understand that. And why did that bother me? Like, why would you leave a perfectly glass of wine sitting there? I mean, you got to finish that. It's not, I will. <laughs> you know, you know these people oh, yeah. who do that, which I love talking to my addict friends. We're like, I know. And my friend's like, who leaves a perfectly good hit of meth around? Like, I'm not going <laughs> like you. When you go to rehab, I went to rehab with like all, every addict you can imagine. And I love yep. them. They're like, actually, let me tell you a little secret. I never, I never felt like I was in anywhere. I always felt like I was out. A lot of people in addic with addictions feel, have that same feeling. While you're in your disease, you never felt like you fit in anywhere. I went to rehab mm. and I found my peace. I yeah, yes. I Heck yeah. I did stories. But when I went in there, I, I just sat and I, I was bawling and crying. And, and they were amazing. And their stories just went on and on. And all of a sudden, my stories did not seem so like terrible after all because I wasn't alone with feeling like an outcast, the pain inside, trying to run from it, the high functioning, hiding. When you're high functioning, you're constantly hiding. That's the yeah. problem with, because people go, oh, if you're in the gutter, it's out there, right? Okay, yep. well, all right. Yep. But then there are those of us who are high functioning. We're very hard to detect. We're very clever. Cunning is not even near the word I would use for how how we would, when your addict is activated, how how uh, what you'll go through. And what you'll do to hide who you really mm. are. And I often say it's that same powerful part of you that keeps it active alive that's going to keep you sober. If you can just switch it right into the, the warrior inside, the authentic self to say, damn, I went through years of hiding a monster inside me. Now I'm like, okay, all right, bitch. Uh-uh. Get in the backseat in the trunk. My addict is with me every day, but she's in the trunk locked where she belongs and sometimes she jumps out when I'm not looking and she taps on my shoulder, alcoholic doing push-ups. You heard that mm -hmm. prelapse sign, man, you got to watch those prelapse sign. When she starts tapping on my shoulder, first thing I do is first of all, who let you out of the trunk? Oh shit. I wasn't looking, which means I wasn't really taking care of my sobriety myself. Cause that's what she'll mm -hmm. do. She'll slip out of that trunk in a minute if I'm not watching. And this mm -hmm. is how I visualize her and I have to stop, pull my car over, take a big breath. So come here, Chica. Come here. Get back in the trunk. Now stay there where you belong. Because if you start driving our car, you will kill us. And I will. we will lose everything if I let you drive this car. That's what you were doing before we went to rehab. We ain't mm. doing that again, girlfriend. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's how we have to kind of embrace that person, that side of us. Right, dude? Yeah, absolutely. Didi, I, I can't tell you how much I love metaphor. I, I was one of those kids that... Um, 
uh, I was homeschooled my whole life and my mom had to find alternative uh, ways of connecting the dots for me, for, for my, for my lear special learning style. And so uh, metaphor is one of those ways that I know I absorb information so much better. And I think that's the same thing for a lot of us, especially in recovery. Yeah. Um, and so I love it when people oh, tell stories in the form of a metaphor. I mean, that one's so good. I've never heard somebody relay it in that way before. Um, yeah, well, we were told, taught in rehab to make friends with that part of you, that the alcoholic inside of you, because you have to kind of understand what the addict is trying to do inside of you. They're trying to survive, mm. they're trying to figure out ways to survive in a very complicated, noisy world. Yep. An ever so changing world. So the so the alcoholic addict comes out and goes, I'll take care of it. Yep. Because <laughs> the real authentic self is usually so beat up, riddled with trauma, riddled with depression, riddled with anxiety, riddled with that internal damn narrative. I'm a piece of shit. I'm ugly. I'm fat. I'm not lovable. I'm all that stuff mm. that the addict comes out and goes, let's just go have a drink and all that can calm down for a yeah. minute. Anyways. And sometimes it does for a minute. But oh boy, does it come back. So that's kind of what we're dealing with inside. So when you start to tease it out and give them all an identity, almost like a good friend or a child or a pet, and then put them in their proper place with love. Because the bottom line is the reason why I do this analogy is because people say, oh, you don't have a drink for four years, so you're over it. I go, oh, honey, I will never be over it. Right. I promise you. Once you're an addict, it doesn't become your identity. Okay. But like a disease, it's something, it's a cancer, right? Mm -hmm. You might mm -hmm. be in um, a remission, but it can yep. come back and it can come back tenfold and bite you in the ass. And it can also yep. kill you just like cancer. So one must be careful, right? Like somebody with cancer, you just really be careful that that, that uh, thing is not too far away. And that's why I say she's always in my trunk of my car. The minute she jumps in the backseat and then she starts in the passenger side and then she's driving, we're, 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 we're in trouble. So, you know, you just sparked my um, hmm, thought process of uh, a question that I like to ask oftentimes because it's something I think most of us can relate to. Tell me a little bit about your experience with imposter syndrome. Do you have any history there? I can't believe you just said that. I just did three interviews last week and all of them I said the same thing. You know, I have imposter syndrome. And then some of them didn't know what it was. Because they're like, how do you keep, you know, how do you feel about all this work you've done, all these actors you've worked with and all these directors and all these awards? Yeah. They go, oh, I have imposter syndrome. I still don't get why they ever hired me. I, I still think that they meant to call the other actors, but my number got switched around and they accidentally hired me. Like, I still have that. How do I deal mm. with that? Ooh. Um, I think a lot of it, doing things like this, yeah. Sometimes when I'm trying to help somebody else, I, I'm hoping it bounces back at me <laughs> because, you know, we're always like, it's easier. Like the therapist's children are generally really messed up, but they're maybe a phenomenal therapist of other people, but their own children, they just like don't know what to do. Right. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that that's true for a lot of people. It's a lot easier to dish it out than to actually mm. take your own advice. So mm. I, I'm always eager and excited to give to somebody anybody who will listen in the hopes that that shit bounces back yeah does it ever bounce back 100 percent penetrate my soul no but if a teeny bit can get in I, i'm better than i was before it's something i work on all the time it's self-love self-care all that stuff 
are big words. And I actually, mm-hmm. even in rehab, they said, oh, we have to work on self-love. But meanwhile, be careful, be careful of all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking. Yeah. So I said, okay, here's me in rehab. Excuse me, I have a question. They're like, why are you raising your hand? <laughs> this is rehab. Everyone talks over each other. And I'm like, I have a question. <laughs> and they're like, I said, you say all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking is not good. And this is true, right? But then you just said, we need to self, we have to love each other. Learn to love mm-hmm. yourself. Love each other. I'm sorry, love yourself. I'm dyslexic. Yeah. I said, so we come in here with self-loathing. I self-loathe myself. I hate myself. You hear it all the time in addicts. I hate myself. Mm-hmm. myself. You're asking us to go to self-love? Isn't that all or nothing thinking? Isn't that black and yeah. white thinking? So I, of course, came up with a solution. I said, how about this? That ain't going to happen with Miss Pfeiffer over here. But you know what I can do? <laughs> and they're like, wait a minute. Is she running this rehab? I said, how about this? Can I work on baby likes? We're every day try to find at least a baby like something I like about myself. Not love, like little yeah. baby ones. And, and eventually, if I can find at least one a day, eventually in the future, we can, it'll hopefully be turned into love. Yeah. For me, you're setting me up for failure because it's hard yeah. to go from hate to love. So every day I try to find a little teeny, like after this, I will hopefully like myself. I'll chalk it up as a baby like towards the bigger picture of self love. How about that? It's just that extra investment in, uh, like, you know, the the um, bank of our of, of our wellness journey, mental health uh, addiction. It's it's what I hear you saying is part of part of my self love is getting out of myself, giving back. Right. Like, and that is so much part of it. We hear in the rooms all the time, like, get out of yourself, get out of yourself, which is so true. But part of part of that self-love journey is is like it's community. So like when I get with you and, you, you know, and we get in a group and we share our experience and um you know, whatever we can do to, to lift the other up. Um, you know, I always do the cup theory, you know, if, if, if you're feeling great and having a great day and you've got a full cup, you know, Hey, that means we should show up wherever we need to so that we can pour some out for the person whose cup is half full or not full at all and vice versa show up for community, whether it's a 12-step meeting, whether it's logging on to something like this, where you can be fed by somebody's amazing story like yours. Um, you know, it's the tools that we use. Uh, it's give and take. It's a fluctuation, an ebb and flow. Um, I, I agree 100%. And I think that yeah. we teach by just being. I don't know, mm. when you start preaching at me, I shut down. And when I got to rehab, first thing I did start preaching at my son. We have to help other people. That's how you're going to. And they were like, whoa, stay in your own lane, mom. And what I decided and what my sober coach reminded me, which was just be. And they'll look over and see what you're doing. And they'll like it or not. And if they like it, hopefully they'll try to emulate that. Because they'll see all mm. the positive and good and love that you do create and stimulate in your life. Right? So we do these things just because it's the right thing to do. And other yeah. people will respond if they're ready. Right, if they're ready and willing to listen, otherwise you plant the seed for maybe somewhere else along the line when they are ready. Just plant the seed, right? Plant that puppy. So, can, yes, and that that kind of pokes a, a, a 
next question for me here is when you went to treatment, was that your first dive into like, were you the first one in the family to dip your toe or jump in to the somebody needs healing? Like, and then you come back here. Well, I should say partially healed. You got a foundation. Uh, you know, you're working on yourself. Giving your tools out in the real world is a whole yeah. treatment thing that's often ignored. Yeah. I'm the first one in the family to ever go to treatment for sure. Um, I'm the only really addict in this generation. Um, my dad, like I said, was an alcoholic and then it runs rapid on both my mom and dad's side all over and mental health all over. I mean, but again, it yeah, it was just that generation. So um, alcoholism absolutely runs in my family. I'm the first one who said, I'm, the buck stops now with me. Mm. Now, I'm not so how- with children from maybe becoming, you know, addicts. I, I, but I, can, I have always said to them, I can't live your journey for you, but I'm here mm. as a soft landing if you need help. And like, they keep telling me to show them what sobriety looks like. Just keep showing them what it looks like so they know where to go for a safe landing. Absolutely. So do you have any uh, words of wisdom or just kind of a picture into the the realm of um, how family dynamic has shifted? Like when we go back into our our home life, back into our, I mean, even larger network of a family, if, I mean, we all have dysfunction that goes on, but then when somebody that starts their healing journey goes back into the network of the family, things are different and they don't all, all the cards don't align like they used to. The puzzle pieces don't fit like they used to because we got somebody doing something different. Um, and so did, has, you know, has any, like, I don't know, any cool things transpired, you know, kind of like a domino effect that you can think of. Um, you're talking the family dynamic, internal family. Yeah which is actually something that this, my rehab actually addressed family members and people close to the attic were invited in on a special day to do what uh, Kathleen Murphy calls psychodrama, where you work with the addict and the family and you talk about the family dynamics, because this is what often happens. The poor addict goes in and busts their ass, try to get healed or at least get in the, start the journey of recovery. And then they go back to their life and nothing has changed. Everything is still there, but they've yep. changed. That's really a jarring and really hard. And so also what happens is people take on uh, like positions and titles within the family unit. Mm. And you're, like I said, the identified problem. And they all adjust to the identified problem. But when you come back and you're the identified possibility, that could very well scare the people in the family because now their identity changed. If they're the enabler... Yeah. They ain't that no more. They don't know how to act to you because they're the enabler or the one that likes to trash you all the time because you're just the big piece of shit in the family. Well, now they don't get to do that because you came back and now you got 60, 90 days, whatever. And you really, now your aura has changed and they, they don't get to beat up on you anymore. Now, what do you, now where's your, right? So everybody's, and then most people in the family are holding their breath. They're holding their breath because they're really afraid you're going to relapse. And then there are those who are just not going to ever forgive you for everything you did and said. And that's probably the hardest one to have to, for you to let that go and let them have that. If they don't want to forgive you, that's their journey. But just, yep. you know, that's a tough one. So there's a lot of things that happen before you come out and find your sober legs. And the one thing you want is to come back and have the family be like, oh my God, this is great. We're all sober. And now we're all happy. 
that doesn't happen almost most of the time. Just yep. because of the family dynamic. You changed, but nothing else did. My family's amazing in the sense that they just kind of were in shock and kind of, it's kind of like quiet. They never did or said anything. They were just like, uh, they didn't really know what to say or do, right? So they always aired on saying that. I love you. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do, but I love you. I'm really happy for you. And that was great. I was like, okay, um, don't say you know what I'm going through because you don't <laughs> any more than I would know what someone bipolar is going through. I don't, right? Right. Um, but so through these four years, it's been an interesting journey and it took them a while for they to start actually asking questions, deeper questions other than just the superficial, we're really happy for you. We love you. This is great. Cause they got to look, they, I think also what happened, they had to look at their own lives. What mm -hmm. am I doing that's just as powerful and amazing as getting fucking sober and throwing your life up for a minute and going into a yeah. rehab, right? Um, for 30 days. Leaving yeah. behind, not talking to anybody for 30 days. Yeah. Well, and to kind of take it back to uh, referencing something you mentioned earlier, it's don't tell me about how you've changed or are going to change. Show me, live it. You know, it's it's just being. And so um, I think that so, so much of the time that uh, it, it it really does take, um, you know, set aside the family's uh, titles that they take on and all those things. It, it only makes sense that, family may distance themselves or communication may halt or pause or sound different or be weird because everybody's feeling out what's new, what's different, what's, you know, cause it has changed and, and, you know, in some way, shape or form, I think, um, you know, uh, they're waiting for the, you know, the, the shooter drop again, you know, uh, what if, what if that. I, I don't blame them because yep. Look at the rate of relapse. Yeah. I mean, yep. it's a huge part of a lot of people's story. I'm very fortunate that at this, at this point today, that's not part of my story. Um, but those where it is, I, I get it, man. I get it. And so in the family's defense, they yeah. are totally waiting for that. And they don't want to be crushed. Yep. Because some people who go out don't come back. My son lost a 17-year-old friend of his who was a, like my son. Mm. Yeah. Fentanyl. Went out, 17 years old, done. And it's then everywhere. a month later. And then so a year old in, in rehab, I went to rehab with uh, Trevor. Same thing, came out, relapsed, fentanyl killed him. So it's, it, it's out there and it's real. Mm -hmm. So, 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 so true. Relapsing anymore, they can literally just not make it back. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about something that uh, kind of, um, identifies your story in, I think, a very, very important platform um, to be addressed or compartmentalized uh, or categorized, I should say. Um, being a high functioner, got sober later in life mm -hmm. person, because there, I think that the older people get, and especially the more, high, the older people get, in addiction, the less hope they have or hope they or their family have that anything's ever going to change. And the high, the higher functioning that you are, unfortunately, the harder it is to see those people 
ask for help, yeah. accept help if it's offered to them, uh, admit that there's a problem. Um, and so I, I just want to talk about that for a minute. So being a high functioning person, uh, you know, getting to the point where treatment became an option and you said yes to it. Um, what could you, you know, tell us a little bit about that? Was that, um, offered to you? What was, what was, what were your consequences like at that point? And, um, what kind of led you into, you know, going to treatment? Um, well, it's interesting because, um, you know, they actually said to me in rehab, which is interesting that, that I said, Oh, I'm just so afraid of relapsing. And then this one amazing therapist said, let me ask you a question. How many times did you try to quit? I said, oh, all the time. She goes, those are all baby relapses. <laughs> You've already done that now, honey. But look that's where a really great point. Every time you try to quit, you can't. That's a relapse. So mm. she's just doing it on your own. And now, we get, now we're here to help you. I was like, whoa, that was like, woohoo. And so true. So yeah. I took everybody. I tried, oh, you know, go go from vodka to wine. Oh, all that, all that. Oh, I, and monitor only ounces and da, da, da. So at this point, I was in my 50s. Wait, I'm 58. Yeah, what? No, yeah, I was in my 50s. And many relapses, because I was always trying to stop. Just like smoking. Yep. I was always trying to stop. And I think I just got tired and exhausted of making an ass of myself, not remembering what would happen the next day. My kids, the disappointment in my boy's eyes, my family, my friends, and myself. And it was just like one too many licks. I mean, cause when you get in your fifties, that's a long ass life. That's a mm. especially me cause I'm very much involved in life. I live life. Like I don't exist. Mm. So that means a lot of failed relationships, a lot of just ugh, doing everything. So there was a lot of yeah. chances for me to do things that, you know, just didn't make me feel very good about myself. So by the time um, a family member came to me and said, hey, this is in between my, my, I just finished my first year of my second year of UCLA, um, my master's social work. And um, I think it just all caught up. Because people say, what was your bottom? I'm like, which one? I had hmm. many bottoms. I wouldn't even know where to begin. But for some reason, this point, I think it was literally exhaustion from trying to hide this monkey on my back. And I had a family member come and say, listen, we, I think they clearly sensed it as well and said, um, and my children. And they were like, you know, we want to, we'd like to do an intervention with you. And I said, oh, please stop right there. I, bought, I was just looking at the TV set the last few weeks and I saw this 800 addiction number. Call anonymously. And I wrote it down. I was going to call. I was mortified. I was embarrassed. I was mm. shame was crippling. The shame because I couldn't fix it. I couldn't stop. I couldn't. I couldn't. Just I didn't know what was wrong with me. You know. Yeah. And I just felt like the biggest loser. So I thought, well, maybe I'll call that number and see what they say. Mm. At that same time, that same week, I had a family member say that, and I said, "You don't need to do. You don't have to do an intervention. I'll go. Just take care of my kids and my animals, and I'll go." Two days later, I was gone. But it was timing. The universe said, she's ready. I was ready. Because had they come a year before, I would have told them all the F off. Get out. You know, it just would have been ugly. I would have been really yep. defensive like most people who are not ready. Right? Because yep. um, it's not about me telling you or vice versa when, what my bottom looks like. My bottom's going to look different than everyone else's bottom. Mm -hmm. That's just our stories. Right? So I, for whatever reason, at that time in life, just went, and I think a lot of it was my sons are older, and I could see that 
I'm slowly killing myself. I somehow knew that. And I just knew I wasn't the, the best I could be, whatever that was. And I just mm. was tired of feeling like a big piece of shit. So yeah. I went in and I was just crying. I go, I don't know how to do this. Just help me. I don't, I don't. And I didn't know how to ask for help. That's what it was. I didn't know how to ask for help because it's just me asking for help was part of that week. That weak yep. part of me that was told, you can't fix this and get up and brush it off and say it doesn't hurt and fix it and go on, which is old school, then I'm a loser, you know? So um, I'm, it was the hardest part of my, my life, those 30 days. I never cried harder in my life for 30 days straight and continued on after that. But it was also most amazing because I didn't realize just how much trauma was also stuck in there. Not only my spot, my my mind, but my soul, my body, the trauma you hold in your body. Just I, there was a lot of stuff going on that I was able to work on because at the end of the day, I really did want to live. I just didn't know how to fix myself. And asking for help is not something in society that we teach anybody to do. Like you would say, oh, you know, oh my God, my leg's in half. It's a broken leg. I need help. Can you help? Right. Can you put a cast right. on that. <laughs> You know, you go to the doctor and ask for help. If bro- your leg is broken, but God forbid you go ask for help for something that's, you know, anything that's not like that. So, um, so true. I, I, I feel like it's like this generation of youngsters that like, you know, I don't know, uh, young 20s and below mm-hmm. um, are all part of this, this new wave that they are experiencing something different than all the rest of us that are older than that um, experienced. And so like the, all the decades pa- past and uh, older, um, just, you know, you've described, and I think with every decade older that um, a person is, um, even going back, especially, I think there's something to do with the t- time period of the depression and how that affected oh, everybody. Yes. Um, and you know, generational trauma happened there and just got comp- compounded the bootstraps mentality, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do what it takes. Don't talk about how much it hurts. Mm-hmm. Do I, you know, get it done, do it. And you know, what, what are feelings, you know, like the, and you know, so, uh, it's I I think that oh my gosh mental mental health <laughs> mental health professionals have a lot of work to do with so many of um so many of us from like I said from I mean they're never going to be out of work but uh, never <laughs> that dynamic that you talked about of asking for help is something that um that I mean, it's so simple but so hard for the majority of the population. I notice it's still cropping up in my own life. You know, uh, over a decade sober, I still deal with areas where I'm like, I've been trying to do this on my own (laughs) for how long? And I have not delegated or asked for somebody else's opinion or said, what do you think about, you know, and I'm suffering and struggling. What is it? In your own metaphor, it's like it's the alcoholic popping out of the trunk that's trying to, you know, <laughs> so. so uh, yeah. You know, I'm often doing things by myself. My, my boys will literally come in and they're 16 and 20, that generation. Mom, why did you just ask for help? I'm, I'm, hmm. I'm, I'm right here. I'm like, oh, because I just do it myself. <laughs> they're like, okay, fine. Then do it yourself. No, get back in here and help. <laughs> but they're like, they're literally like, just ask for help. But yeah, it's so funny because their, their generation is so 
like they're so they're not boggled down with a lot of the crap that we were raised with or our parents. So that I, I I'm learning from the new generation seriously, and yeah. I because remember this is another zinger. You're gonna love this one. Make sure, and I think you probably heard this because we say this a lot in recovery. To look through the lens of don't be careful. Be mindful when you're looking through the lens of resistance. This is what resistance looks like. Look at the point of view versus curiosity. Mm. Resistance, curiosity. Think about it. Ooh. I haven't ever, no, nobody's ever done that or showed that or said that to me. And if you're listening right now, I challenge you to get on one of the platforms where you can watch this and see what DD just did, because um, that is it's a lot of sense. It's Kathleen Murphy, man. Here we go. Yeah. Kat Murphy 57. She's my therapist and she ran the, the Breathe uh, Life Healing Center when I was there. And she, these are all of her zingers. She's the one who I mean, came up with identified problem and now you're the identified possibility. She's the one her who- Think of the name, remember, resistance and curiosity, man. Beautiful. Her nickname should her nickname should be Dr. Zinger. Um <laughs> Yeah, she saved my life, man. And I love literally I always say stealing from her. I go, I'm borrowing from Kathleen. I never take yeah. credit for it. I just think it's I love repeating everything she's taught me because there's such Absolutely. such little gifts. Yeah. I think that's what we're meant to do. Well, I, I want to ask you as well um about Okay, so career-wise, uh, being in the film industry, um, you know, Hollywood, acting, music, you, know, you name it, um, that that cr- line of work, drugs are everywhere, alcohol is everywhere, using and drinking is so commonplace and so accepted and tolerated. So how did that play out? And I mean, it had to have been something that helped uh, – potentially make it make you high functioning longer because you're in an industry where it's like that's well, a Tuesday yeah. it's what you do you always went up for drinks and wrap beers I mean the way you socialize is always over drinking you know um it was difficult to come back to Big mm. Sky which is my first acting gig in over 10 years having been away number one and then also in the process of being away only I think it was a year sober when I started so I don't really I didn't have my strong sober legs so, but yeah, so it was, it was different because I was used to drinking. It was such a huge part of it, not during Mm. my work, but afterwards, man, I'd go hit, hit it, you know, and bonding with people was always about, let's go to the hotel bar on the top or whatever. So one of the good things that saved me was that COVID happened. Mm. So we were all doing things zoom. We weren't allowed Mm -hmm. to see each other. So although we would do Zoom get-togethers, they would be drinking, but it would be via Zoom. And I just wouldn't mm. really look at the Zoom one whose glass was going up. And I had my, I'd get my Coca-Cola and my jalapeno kettle chips. <laughs> and, you know, I was in there. I tried really hard. It was odd. It was weird. I'm not going to lie. It was different. Mm. Um, mm. And certainly after that, I, I would also tell them straight up, I need what I would call um, um, an exit plan. So I said, I'll go, but there's a good chance I'll leave early. And it, I hope you understand. They're like, yeah, we totally understand. I said, if I start getting itchy is what I call it. If I start getting itchy, I'm going to have to leave. Mm. They're like, oh, yeah, Didi, please go ahead. We totally respect you and we get it too. And then you hear they're drinking um, inventory, by the way. Don't you love that? Oh, yeah, well, I don't really drink that much. I only drink <laughs> and all of a sudden now I get their inventory. I'm like, no, 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 honey. It's all- <laughs> I know, right? 
You say yes. you're sober, you get the person's inventory. You're like, no, 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 please, it's okay. I don't give a drink. Of, you do you. I'm just saying I don't. And oh my god, I love that. So every it's like the the shame washes over them, and all of a sudden they feel like there's justification needs to take place. I'm not oh, this weekend either. Because I'm trying to lose weight. I'm like, it's a little different than what I'm doing, but I understand. But thank you for that. That's my little. Yes, I'll die because I will go right back to how I was when I left, which was drinking way too much. So yeah. um, it was a, a tr- it was it was super like I just had to be I had to learn to be okay with being uncomfortable I had to learn to be okay with not really knowing how to do it and reach mm-hmm. out to a lot of my sober friends on constantly and them saying I know one's you know a flight attendant she's like I'm serving drinks I'm like I you're bigger than me man I'm sorry your balls are bigger yeah. than mine I could not serve someone a drink that that I just couldn't you know and she's like but you're over there with all these actors I'm like. So it's like funny how she thought I was like the stud and I thought she was the stud and yet we're just supporting each other, you know, um, through those really difficult times. Right. Cause, um, it's like learning how to walk again. I yeah. think to view it that way. The worst thing you do is try to fit in the way you used to, you have to just own it. And mm. I did that. Hey guys, I'm sober. I'll show up. But if I leave early, forgive me, I'm going to get itchy. You know, and you don't want me itchy because if I start getting itchy, I might drink and it's, it won't be pretty. They're like, oh, no, no, that's okay. When you really just tell people who you are, nine, 99.9% of the time, they're totally fine with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're totally fine with that generally. And if not, you have to just say, well, I don't, it's okay. I don't expect you to understand. But listen, I love you and we'll do it again. But right now I'm out. I'm out. You know, I do that with my family at all the holidays because they drink and I'm like, listen, you know. And they're like, well, we don't have to drink it when you come. I said, no, no, you guys drink, you do you. And I'm going to try to do my sober thing in there. And as I'm growing my sober legs, but just be okay or not be okay or, or be okay with me having an exit plan. I love that you brought that up um, and the way you said it, don't try and fit in the way you used to oh, because- No, no. Can I tell you that I even- to this day, not quite as much, but I mean, I, I think with every passing year, um, it dissipates somewhat. Whether you're talking about um, going back to a um, a drinking situation, or in my case, it's family, it's a family dynamic where I grew up in a dry household. Like I was never my I'm, my family is not I'm not being around drinking people, um, but going back to environments where I was not on my healing journey yet. Um, You know, it's so important to prepare yourself internally to not try to fit in the way that you used to in all the situations, not just the ones where alcohol or drugs are going to be involved your whole life and, and every single uh, part where you interact with other people You've got to be okay with yourself first and then help them understand things are different with you and vocalize it and communicate it. And then you can be in community, which is what you just said. And it's so I had to frame it in my own words because like that was a a nugget, a zinger all in itself that I think is something that not everybody gets and not everybody's prepared for. And then they go home and they're like, whoa, whoa. so future tripping that goes all that goes hand in hand with future tripping. Yeah. Future trip, which we all love to do. But then when you're recovering, you're future tripping. That's really scary. 
Um, mm-hmm. I literally have to visualize my legs being different legs. They are sober legs and they're baby legs. I'm still crawling on my knees, still learning how to walk on sober legs. Yeah. I know how to walk on drunk legs. Oh, you bet I do. Took me 50 plus years to, to get those puppies. But now I have these brand new <laughs> little baby legs that are like, I'm sober and I don't know how to do this. You almost have to treat her like a baby. Would you say, come on, baby, get up and go to college? No, the baby first has to learn how to crawl and then it's going to scale the walls and then it's going to start walking and falling. Okay, falling does not necessarily mean relapsing. Falling can just mm-hmm. be like, my friend said to me, I, when I first started, I said, oh my God. I said, oh, I'm not doing this right. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm just not doing it right. And I go, I didn't read this. My sponsor told me to do this. I didn't do that. And I'm future tripping and I'm doing all these things. And he goes, let me ask you a question. Stop. Did you show up today, Dee Dee? I said, what do you mean show up? I showed up to a lot of places. I showed up at an A-Mean. I showed up to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, did you show up? Meaning, did you use or not? I said, I didn't. He goes, you showed up. If you didn't use, you showed up. The rest of the day was shit. Fine. But you showed up, so you're still ahead of the game. If all you can do on any day is just not use, then you showed up, and tomorrow's another day, and you'll try it again. Do the other stuff. And yeah. I was like, he just simplified it. Like sometimes mm-hmm. just not using is more than enough in our land, in our world. That's right. Pile up all the stuff and future tripping is part of that. Oh, I need to go and I need them to, oh, I don't want them to think I'm not fun anymore because I don't drink now and I don't even know how to fun, be fun without drinking. Cause that was my big one for me. I had to discover what fun looked like for me in a sober way. I will not lie. It looked different. Yeah, I lost my sense of humor for a minute, and I had to grieve that. My sense of humor changed, and then I started going to great AA meetings where people were talking, smoking meth off some some guy's naked butt, and I was just like, ah, that guy's funny. I mean, right? Like, wait, a minute, that's that's funnier than you know, stand up comedian. Some of these AA meetings, especially the gay AA, yep. they're the best, best stories, best snacks, best coffee. I might add. Um, Absolutely. By the way, people go, where do you meet celebrities? I mean, this is what I said on an interview the day. I said, you really want to meet celebrities? Go to all the AA meetings in LA. I promise you, you will bump into so many celebrities because almost <laughs> all of us are in rehab. So it's not, it's almost like a cool LA thing. Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah. Which, which meeting do you go to? Oh, I go to Melville. Oh, we should have been Melville. Oh, well, I go to WeHo. Yeah, well, that's a good meeting. Colfax. Oh yeah, that's a good meeting. You know, I love it. That's what we do. You know, that's how we fly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to, I was actually in L I didn't realize you live. So you live in LA now. Yeah. I'm by cold. Well, I'm in, in New Mexico. This time I'm wearing my New Mexico hat because we're filming uh, in New Mexico. So I'm both LA. Gotcha. Mexico, and sometimes on a layover, who knows Denver, I'm going to grab my charger. Oh, no worries. I, it's luckily it's yeah. upstairs. Sorry about that. I was, no, you're fine. I was uh, in LA yesterday and, um, and, uh, back to back things. And anyway, um, but I really, I've always heard that LA has such great, uh, 12 step meetings and oh. I, uh, it's on, it's, it's on my, like, next time I go, I've got to check it. I got to check some meetings out because, um, you know, hats and tats, hats and tattoos, hats and tats on, on Fairfax. Big okay. Movie, two speakers. Awesome. And so inspirational. It's like a big party and they have great snacks, great coffee. It's all about the snacks and coffee. I love it. I'll definitely check that one out. Um, 
Oh my gosh. So we, we are almost out of time, Didi. And I just want to, you know, thank you again, but also end with what I feel like is the most important question. Um, you know, you've been dropping, dropping bombs, nuggets, zingers all the way through here. <laughs> but, you know, for, but for that person that's, that's, uh, watching or listening that has, that has identified, uh, with all or part of your story, um, what, what would, last word of encouragement would you like to leave with them today? I think that um, first ask yourself, are you really happy? Have you really discovered what your authentic self looks like, feels like, sounds like? Because I was about as far away from my authentic self as you could be when I was in my disease, right? Mm. Um, and that also includes mental health when it comes to not seeking help, right? Um, and if you, if the, if the answer is no, and if asking for help is really scary and oh my God, I get it. There are anonymous numbers you can call just to talk to somebody. And for me, that's a baby step again. Again, those baby steps. I'm not saying go throw yourself your ass in rehab. I'm not saying go, go walk up to an AA meeting. By the way, you can go to an AA meeting. Even if you're a little high, you can go. They just ask you not to speak. That's it. Yep. And trust me, someone will come up to you. And by the way, be careful because I don't have like a God like everybody else. So when they can say, oh God, if you don't have a God, you're going to relapse. I was like, whoa, that's just, why would you even put that out there? So find an AA meeting that suits you. And so for instance, mm -hmm. my God is Mother Earth. You know, God for me, this one guy said, God is a group of drunks. God, your group of drunks. I was like, uh, that acronym, love it. I love that guy. I was like, ah, oh, I found my A meeting. This guy's like, ah, oh, my God is a group of drunks. So if you go to A meeting, you're turned off, find another one, find another one. Literally, that's right. keep going. Now, if that's not it, then there's phones. You can do it anonymously over the phone, which is what I was going to do and tell my family, God bless them, detected that, wow, she is seriously, you know, mm -hmm. low. Um, and can I say one last thing? Asking for help is absolutely one of the most bravest things you can do, for sure. Mm -hmm. There's nothing weak about asking for help. It's actually quite brave because it's that hard, right? If it's that hard, how can you be? How can you be a wimp if you're doing something really hard? That doesn't even make any sense. That math makes no sense. So it's okay, man. Ask for help in any way you can. Follow me on Instagram. You'll see little shout-outs, and I will heart you. You know, I always say call it harding, you know, liking. Yeah. That's me. I always say, that's me, man. I'm I'm liking your comments, even if you're a little snarky. I might like <laughs> it. I mean, I like what you said, but I heard you. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you can get someone to uh, hear you, right? Because you're not alone. You're not alone. That's what I would say. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, um, check the show notes because we're going to have all the ways that you can get connected with um, Dee Dee and um, what is going on with her, her links to her Instagram, um, which I guarantee you're going to want to follow and stay connected with her. Um, and uh, I would like to end with how I always do by reminding each and every one of you that you are only ever one decision away from a completely different life. And it is never too late to start loving yourself. For more information on today's episode, check out the show notes. Recovery Stories is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098 
or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please share with your friends. Follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are grateful for you and hope that you have been encouraged by today's episode. As always, remember you are only one decision away from a completely different life, and it is never too late to start loving yourself. 